Hey friends, it's your pal Mike Shea from Sly Flourish here with another episode of the Lazy D&D Talk Show. In this weekly show, we talk about all things D&D. This show, like all the work of Sly Flourish, is brought to you by the patrons of Sly Flourish. You can help support this show and all of the work I do by becoming a patron of Sly Flourish. The link is in the show notes below. And we're going to start off by talking about one of the rewards that patrons get. I've talked about this on the last couple of shows, but we added some new things and I wanted to show it off. So I have a city guidebook called the City of Arches. This is one of a number of different rewards that patrons of Five Flourish get. And it is a 17-page guidebook to a city that I put together called the City of Arches. I've described it before, so I'm only going to give a brief summary. In a brief summary, it is an ancient city built atop ruins of old and multiple old empires. And its notable feature is that it has these ancient archways all throughout that used to be gateways to other worlds, but now don't really work particularly well. They still kind of work. Every so often, on rare occasions, an entity will step through from the other side of an archway and into the city. Oftentimes, it's like a humanoid from a different world. Sometimes it's like a crazy monster thing. But whatever comes through, they generally lose their memories of where they were and kind of come in sort of dazed and confused. And they're brought into the city and everybody is given a clean slate in this city to start off with. They may do terrible things once they get to the city, which would have the city reacting kind, but not, not exactly kind. They wouldn't do terrible things back. Maybe, I guess, kind of. But generally speaking, if you come in, even if you're a giant horned devil and you don't start murdering people, they will say, welcome, here's your gift basket with your fancy soaps and your artisanal cheeses. Head to the pools, have a bath, you'll feel better. So it's a very nice city, and it's designed so that any character race is comfortable here. It's designed so that any, if you want to play with any character race, it was designed to break the idea that like, oh, I have a Loxodon and a Tiger person and a Tortle and a Kenku, and yet we're in Icewind Dale and everybody's treating us like, like a bunch of humans. This is an opportunity for lots of different races to all coexist in, inside one city, and it makes sense for all of them to be there. So it's, that, was, that was its design. It also sits upon uh, a tremendous amount of old ruins and places to explore and of course there's cults and dark things going on in different parts that that that, that go with go with any DD city so it is a very straightforward place to run lots of adventures but also is very open in in many numerous ways so the big changes that happened this past week this has been delivered to patrons of slifler you can go straight to your patreon page you go to your rewards page or look at the last update and you can click on this and you get two things you get the pdf which i'm going to show now you also get the map pack which includes large large format maps for all of this. And the big change, as you can see, I changed the title uh, image, the cover image, because I like this map so much. This map is by Chloe Ballard, and she did a wonderful map. So the main differences in the City of Arches now, as opposed to what I had originally put out, is that it now has a beautiful, let's see if I can go to the end of the thing here, all kinds of stuff, random encounters, everything you need. Great big, beautiful map of the city, articulated with all the places. You could actually print this map out and hand it to your players, because given that they are in the city, they go anywhere, it would make sense, and they can go, ooh, I want to go explore X, Y, or Z. Great place to go. Beautiful map, and again, there's a high-res, unannotated version of this map in the map pack, so you can make a big version, a big format version, give it to your, give it to your group, whatever you want. I also added the one-page City of Arches Player's Guide. Uh, you could, if you want, print the map on one side and the Player's Guide on the other and hand them out to your players. That would be an interesting way to go. It includes the six truths of the city, highlighted with, with like, you know, proper nouns, who are, the, who are the people, what are the places, all this kind of things. Who are the patrons, what your character is like in nearly any of the race will fit well in the City of Arches, who are the patrons that you might follow. Just stuff to kind of get your players, and really you, uh, used to the city in just a single page. Uh, then I also included the two-page adventure, The Obsidian Skull. 
The Obsidian Skull is a first level one to two hour-ish adventure that throws you right into the thing where you are hunting down cultists who are trying to open up an archway to pull terrible things through. Uh, very small dungeon, three room dungeon, just two pages, fun, first level, a little hard. You know, I get all this, you know, I give all this crap to Wizards of the Coast for putting out adventures that are too hard and then I throw a cult fanatic and like crazy multi-round events. And characters are getting killed in this. So I don't know, I might need to tune it a little bit. We're gonna see. So that's cool. And then, oh, so th did I, wow, I added this. This is a preview of something that's coming up. I haven't, I haven't actually added this to the PDF yet. But one of the things I'm working on is an adventure generator for the City of Arches. What I found out, I said, oh, this is a great idea, right? Let's build an adventure generator. It lets you build all kinds of adventures in the City of Arches. Sounds like a great idea. Turns out that the generics adventure builder tables in the Lazy DM's Companion and in Sly Flourish's Uncovered Secrets Volume 1 work pretty much as is. You really don't need to change very much to get them to work in the City of Arches. I was sitting trying to think like, what else do I change? So I made some slight tweaks, but this is essentially the same as the core adventure uh, the, the core adventure tables in Uncovered Secrets and in the Lazy DM's Companion. I slightly changed the origin table, right? So that, and I, and I you know, avoided terms like Loxodon because that's pretty specialized and said elephant folk, right? So I'm going to add this in there anyway, but the reality is this isn't anything terribly special because it already exists in previous ones, but it's nice to have it in the book. So I'm still adding this in. It's a great way to kind of just roll up things and find fun places to do adventures. So that is the new additions to the City of Arches. As another little sneak preview, one of the things I wanted to do, as soon as I did this, I talked to... Uh, Chloe Ballard, and I was like, you know what I would really love? A side view map, right? Because this the thing about the City of Arches is that it's expandable in many ways, but three big ways that it can expand, three ways that you could sort of turn this into a huge campaign is it's got these catacombs in the mountains above that are basically a limitless number of catacombs and chambers beyond and beyond the city itself. That's sort of what I consider the lower tier area. Then you have the depths below, and, and there's a name for them. I always forget the name of my own thing. Let's see. I think it's like the, the Lost Cisterns, right? So the Lost Cisterns are all these chambers that go below the city. These are waterways and sewers and ancient ruins and dead, dead cities that have been buried underneath the city that's above. Basically limitless that, that's kind of a tier two-ish sort of place. There's also a lot of places like the, like the Tower of the Arcane, Cartan, the Tower of the Arcane. It's got chambers below it. There's a theater, uh, great big, great big theater, and it's got chambers below it. And then, of course, you have the arches, and the arches can really go anywhere, right? So if you find a key, the key might open up an arch, and that arch could go to another world, it could go to another plane of existence, it could go to just another dungeon somewhere in this world. You can really expand it as far as you want to go, and that's where you can get into your tier three, tier four level stuff. So I was like, you know, I want to kind of visually show this, right? I, th I think it would be cool to see the depths. So I, I drafted it up. Chloe, Chloe can't work on it right away. So this is probably not going to happen maybe a month or so before we actually get a, a, a nice version of this. But this was the map I worked on on Friday. And it's a side view. And so some of these features, like this is the main archway of the city. This is the theater. This is the, what's it called? The Devil's Forge. This is the uh, Cartan, the Tower of the Arcane. These are the three gods. This is the catacombs. Uh, and so you have the Lost Cisterns here, right? You have the, the lowest depths, which I didn't even really describe uh, in the book, but I'm going to add a description for it when we when we get this map out. This is your tier three-ish la layer down, down below. And then you have all these sort of depths. And this is not a perfect representation, right? This is sort of an abstract representation of the different sections below. I have 
like 40 something descriptions in here. Those 40 something descriptions aren't going to be in the book. Those are descriptions that I want to give to Chloe. So she knows what to draw from my chicken scratches that I put here. Right. So the cool bit is that I'm going to describe them in regions. So there's like the catacomb regions, there's the subterranean depths, there's all this kind of stuff. So it's a cool way to kind of show, hey, this really can expand in any direction. And it really makes the City of Arches essentially a place you could easily, easily, I don't know, is it ever easy to run a 20th level campaign? It is certainly, it is certainly a way to show the, it's certainly a place where you could potentially run a 20th level campaign in the city. But really, it's as big or as small as you want. And the other cool bit, hey, Rex is here. Hey, welcome from America. Hail from Hungary. Very cool. So one of the neat things is you can unlock what pieces. So you don't have to, it's not like, oh my God, you're in the city and there's 20 levels worth of content, right? You can lock them and unlock them. The keys to get to the regions, directions on how to get there, all that kind of stuff. One thing about the archways is the archways don't work right now. It's not like Sigil where it's open up to all of the planes and you can walk to them. It's like, no, the arches don't work, right? They only kind of work on the way in. And then you can find keys. So as a DM, you can decide, like, I'm going to release one key that opens one gate to one place. Or maybe you find three keys that open three gates to three different places. And you get to expand how much or how little you use of this city, either overall or during the length of your campaign. So that's kind of a cool bit. Anyway, I wanted to share that. I like this. I, I like my side view map. This is really hard to draw for me. I'm not very talented when it comes to drawing, but I thought it was a fun, a fun way to show it. One, one inspiration for this is definitely like Dark Souls, right? I love the idea that sort of everything is interconnected in Dark Souls, your entire game in Dark Souls, every place goes to some other place. And I wanted to kind of capture a little bit of that idea that like different places you go all have their different kind of themes, different kind of monsters that might be there and different sort of paths that you can take that could take you from one place to the other. So I'm, I'm, I'm excited for this. I'm, I'm looking forward to working with Chloe on this. She hasn't agreed to do it yet. So I'm hoping that she's on board. Anyway, that is the City of Arches. Thank you for, thank you for letting me talk about the, the, the City of Arches. What else do we have to talk today? So I did a poll on Twitter. I actually did two polls on, on Twitter, right? I did a poll back in 2019 saying, this is a Twitter poll for D&D uh, players and Dungeon Masters. Do you primarily play D&D online or in person, right? And I was prescient enough through, of course, luck, right? To do this right before COVID, right? I think, right? COVID was 2020, right? I can't, I'm, I've lost, I've, I feel like I've lost two years. So I did this in October, 2019. So like six months before COVID, right? And what I got back was 3,377 3, respondents. We'll talk about that sample number in a second. And 70% said they play mostly in person. 20% said they play mostly online. And 10% said they play about equally both, right? This is on Twitter. And then I ran the same poll in February 2022, so just a month or so ago. 787 responses. Again, we'll talk about the sample rate in a second because some people had questions about that. And it's almost perfectly reversed, right? 26% now play mostly in person and 63% play online, right? 63%. And there's, again, about a, the same, almost the same amount that play equally. So I found these results really interesting and, and surprising. And then everyone's like, you know, COVID happened. I'm like, Really? Oh, I forgot. Thanks. Thanks for sharing that on Twitter, friends. Right? Yeah, I get it. I know, I know COVID happened. It's still a crazy shift in how D&D is played. If it, for me, it was, a, it, it, I mean, I, I, I know it, right? Like I know that online play. It did for me, right? And that I went from 100% in person to 100% online for two years, right? I'm just now starting to think about getting people back to my table again. And like, 
But still, so I get it, right? I know the shift, but it's still something to see it in the data like this and see that shift and think about what that means for the game, right? That, that to me was still, like, I know it's, it's just one area where I see like COVID has obviously completely changed the world, right? And it's changed it forever, frankly. There's a lot of people like, oh, it's going to go back to the way it was. Like, I don't think so. I think things are going to be different forever, right? And that's okay. It is what it is, right? I mean, it's not okay. It sucked. But yeah, again, what happened, happened, right? So I got some questions. It's always, whenever I put out a poll like this, a couple interesting things happen. One is people who disagree with the poll like to argue with the methodology. They don't, so people who disagree don't like to say, well, I disagree, right? It's like, oh, well, your methodology is wrong. It's like interesting how you only argue with my methodology when you don't like the results. Because I didn't have a lot of people like, your methodology sucks, but the results are probably right. You never get that, right? So... So that was that was interesting. Oh, so the sample size, first of all, you know, drastic difference in the number of respondents, but 787 is still it's still a reasonable sample size with the recognition it is already a completely flawed survey. And it's a flawed survey because it's self-selected. They're deciding whether to take it or not. It is people that either are following me on Twitter or saw the poll on Twitter who happen to be on in line at that time, all that sort of stuff. So it's already a flawed survey, regardless of the number of respondents. And the, to me, another little interesting thing that shows the difference between 3,000 responses I got in 2019 and 700, 900 that I got. My followers have gone up over those two years, right? And yet I'm getting fewer people that are reading any given tweet. This is my problem with Twitter currently. Like Twitter, when they switch to an algorithm, in my opinion, it's completely ruined. It's completely ruined Twitter. I'm really very unhappy with Twitter. I can still throw things out. I'm not exactly getting ready to delete my account, but I really don't like it near as much as I do. I spend a lot less time there. I'm much happier with things like Discord and YouTube. YouTube has been huge. In fact, if I, I could do the polls on YouTube. The problem is doing a poll on Twitter and a poll on YouTube, you're getting totally different sample sets. Either way, it's easier to argue. So anyway, this, the point is that 787 is enough for this number to be accurate, given the type of people, given the group of people that answered the poll. So we can argue about the methodology. I but it's still, you know, it's not, is it surprising? No, obviously, because you can look and go, yeah, everybody kind of left their groups and went online, right? I get it. And the other thing to keep in mind is that it's not the same people. In fact, the second group could very likely be significantly larger, probably is significantly larger than the former group, which means the people who were playing in person, probably not, but maybe could still be playing in person. And there's just a much larger group of people who have started playing D&D online. Right. Like that could be because the, that number of people I don't have. a I don't have a census. I don't know how many people have played. So it's you know, it, it could be it's, it's not likely. Again, a lot of us switched from in-person online play because of covid. But it's possible that the, the overall population grew significantly. So what does this mean? Right. Why do I care? What I care about, particularly for people like me that are trying to out there trying to help DMs run games is to recall that there's probably more people playing online than are people in person that I'm reaching. Right. Because the same people that I'm reaching here, very likely. And I would I would totally run a poll on Twitch right now, but I don't know how to run polls. Right. So I, I find I find the results interesting and it really makes me think that like whenever I'm offering advice, it's worth considering that maybe two thirds of the people that I'm offering it to are playing online versus playing in person. And that the best solutions are the ones that you can kind of do both online and in person, right? I'm not giving up. It's not like, oh, well, we're never going to talk about index cards again because index cards are still really useful, right? Or we're never going to talk about table props and stuff like that because, you know, a third is not zero. But there is this like question of, of how many, you know, the kinds of things we're offering, recalling that, hey, the things we're making, the things we're building should support both online and in person. Again, 
I feel like I kind of do that with PDFs and offering map packs and stuff. I know a lot of people are like, hey, can you make your maps compatible or make your whole thing compatible with my virtual tabletop of choice? I've held off onto that kind of stuff for the most part, just because it's a lot of extra work and it's a lot of other things to manage and I'm, I'm very busy. But, you know, making sure that as much as possible that we're supporting online play uh, really matters. Along this whole thing, right, this big question is that Roll20 has dramatically uh, increased its population too. Roll20 is the largest virtual table, I'm pretty sure, the largest virtual tabletop that runs role-playing games, half of which is D&D, I think maybe more than half. And they said in 2020, they had 5 million users, and in 2021, they have they have 10 million users. They doubled in essentially two years, right? Again, not surprising, but when we get to that idea that the population has gotten bigger, this is a pretty good evidence that the population has gotten bigger. That is a lot of users playing with Roll20. 10 million. 10 million users is as many as World of Warcraft had in its height, I think. I think that's about right. I don't know if they ever reached like 20 million users. They may have. But holy cow, that is a lot of people running games online that is a tremendous user base and it's no wonder that like the new ceo of watsi is the of wizards of the coast came from the digital side right she worked at microsoft she worked at amazon so they're clearly like hey we got to get in on this and we know that they're gonna they're gonna go this route now i hope they do that without destroying the goodwill that they've built with D&D beyond and that they've done with roll 20 and other groups i hope they continue to say we will license it to other groups but we are also going to build our own if i were in charge that's what i would do uh, users does not equal paying members. That is true. So business-wise, it is not as big as like World of Warcraft. Roll20 isn't. But it is still pretty big. The other news is that Nolan Jones, who used to co- who co-founded the company and used to be the CEO, has stepped down. And they have a new CEO, uh, Anket Lal, which is very interesting. I have a friend who actually worked works or worked and was one of the founders as well that that i have lost touch with so i'm going to reach out to him and say hey how's how are things been going he was he was worked there he actually played in my game i had one of the founders of roll 20 playing in my home game who used to use roll 20 on his tablet while we were playing it was very funny he was a great, really great guy so so that also just goes further to show like how big this space is and what that means right and and i don't know i'm not sure i have my my whole hands around that. So that's very interesting. So let's talk about Cult of the Hydra, which I should have preloaded and forgot. But here it is. Cult of the Hydra. This is a big 178-page adventure, uh, a great big like campaign adventure. Think like a D&D you know, hardback-sized campaign adventure. It is available on the DM's Guild. I think it is, I think it's 30 bucks for the PDF. Yeah, 30 bucks for the PDF. Josh Perry, JVC Perry, who is here in the chat with us, is the primary writer of it. And it was put together with support from, who's the company that did it? Black Skull Games, right? And it's a pretty tremendous work. It's it's rare to find a product on the DMs Guild as big and as highly produced as this. This is up there along the lines of the kind of stuff that What's his name who made Eberron? Keith Baker made for Eberron. Uh, this stuff that we just we just saw some uh, a new one for Thay. These sort of really big meaty PDFs. They're big, they're expensive, but they have lots and lots of custom artwork, lots of design, lots of effort that went into them. They're really great, great, big, big products, right? And it's we're gonna we're gonna talk about why it's rare to find these on the DMs Guild. You can probably figure out why. We'll talk a little bit about that. But really, first we want to talk about is the product itself. So it is a uh, campaign a campaign adventure. I would say having 
glance through it and keep in mind what you are hearing the difference between a spotlight and a review is the spotlight is like an impression right i've i've looked at it i've i've paged through it i haven't read it cover to cover and i certainly haven't run it so i'm basically giving impressions of what i of what i saw and i dig it first of all it is a beautiful book clearly expensive right like they put real money into making this book it is not a word document converted to pdf like i did it is, you know, lots of custom art. It is a dark, it's a dark adventure. It's set in a city that you can kind of move anywhere and it's a highly magical city. I really like, again, the, uh, the artwork is very evocative of what, of the kind of, the kind of setting that it has. And it is a, oh, let's see, what's the uh, level one to 10? Is that? Do, do, do. Yes, a level one to 10 adventure. It is a more linear, from what I can gather, and Josh, you can correct me since you're here. Oh, and Black Skull Games is just one person and they don't want to have, they don't want to be named. Are they not credited? Interesting. Chris Boyce did the story and setting and it was written by JVC Perry, JVC, by Josh Perry, JVC Perry. Like, like other books, it is sort of half, half the book, a little bit more than half the book is the actual adventure, right? And then a, a huge appendix full of creatures and different groups and more information about the history, the whole this whole idea of the the world of Sorcerian, all that all that kind of stuff, right? Uh, great big, like look how big the appendix, the, you know, the 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 appendices are. Lots of different stuff going on in the appendices. So, kind of fits that sort of Waterdeep Dragon Heist model, where about half of the book, the actual adventure, the other half of the book is definitely setting. Josh Perry agrees that it is more linear than other stuff he's written, but there's a chunk at the end that allows the city to be run as a sandbox, right? So if you're looking for a more episodic style adventure, the episodic style adventure, you, you definitely get that here, right? If you think about, I talk about the yam shaped adventure, right? Where you sort of have like a starting adventure and then it widens out and the players can kind of go different directions and make different choices about things going on and sort of little pieces. And that sort of closes back in, thus the shape of a yam, right? That it closes back in at the end when you get to the final conclusion of the game. I tend to prefer campaigns like that. I like campaigns where there's a lot of different things in front of the characters at any given time. They can sort of choose their path. It's not quite a full sandbox where they go anywhere and do anything. There's still a central plot line, but it's your interaction with that central plot line. Your interaction with that central plot line is uh, all driven by different things that you do in each of these, in each of these different adventures. So what else can I, you know, the main things that, that grab me about this is how beautiful the book is. It is a really, really good looking, good looking PDF. I like this, that content warning, human, especially child sacrifice is a major theme of this campaign. Okay, I guess we'll get that up, up front, right? Definitely a dark, a, 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 a dark themed adventure. It has, one thing that I really, really dig about this is it has a chapter zero. Right. So it's got sort of a built in session zero and you build your characters with this core storyline wired into them through this idea of the blood debts. Right. You have a blood debt to Azalon, who's the ruler over this the, the, this place, which means like you're in the adventure. Right. Your characters are wired into the adventure. And that way there's no real question. Right. And so. I, I definitely have heard people who kind of say like, well, doesn't that remove the agency from the players to kind of choose things? And it's like, well, the agency for this kind of comes up front when you talk, hopefully talk to your players and say, are you interested in this? And explain that it's going to be wired this way. But on the assumption that your players are on board with the campaign you're going to run, I don't have any problem 
being pretty hard-nosed about wiring in the theme of the campaign into their characters when they make them. Because if they're, if they're on board with that, everything is so much smoother, right? This was the problem with drag, with Descent into Avernus. If, if your characters have no reason to save Elturel from hell, why would they bother to do it, right? And so Adventures League has this problem a little bit because the characters that you generate in Adventures League aren't really built around the campaign theme of the campaign they might be having to go in. You have to sort of enjoy... You have to sort of expect that your player is going to follow along the mission and kind of go, oh, I guess I'm going to do this. But you, there's no, like, to me, that's the lack of agency when you have to go on an adventure, but your character doesn't want to. So having something like a chapter zero where it just, you know, hardline wires in the theme of the campaign into your character from the get go at first seems like you're taking away player agency, but you're really not. What you're doing is you are making sure that all of the that that player is going to have, and that character is going to have a good time playing in the rest of this because their character is motivated to do so. So that's where this goes in. So I think it's really neat that they have sort of a chapter one. One thing I notice is if you go to the, if you go to the DMs Guild site and you click the full size preview, if I, if I, download, uh, I guess it's just downloads. The full size preview includes the session zero, includes the chapter zero in it. It would be really cool. It's probably too much to put in there. It would have been pretty cool if they also included chapter one so that you could get a, a decent way into this adventure without having to spend the full 30 bucks. That'd have been nice, but it, it still it still works out. It still works out really well. What else can I say? Whoops, I lost my I lost my place. Oh no, there it is. Most, as far as I can tell, like if it's if it's artwork that was taken from other sources, I sure as hell couldn't tell. I have a feeling the great amount of art, if not all of it, look at that, right? Beautiful, beautiful artwork. So the, if I put too many pages in the full size preview, it doesn't load. Ah, so, so Josh tried to make it and wasn't able to because of a size restriction. So that's, yeah, you could, uh, no, you, you could host it somewhere else and you can actually in, in, in I think uh, certainly in DriveThruRPG, maybe in, in the DMs Guild, you can host your own PDF on the side somewhere. Not nitpicking, just a thought. Josh, is all of the art unique or is it, does it use some art from other places? It's a gorgeous book. So really neat, neat thing. The whole theme of it is following this, this cult of the Hydra. I didn't, I didn't dig too deep into what the, the, the storyline itself we have. There is a summary up front. Why don't we look at that summary? Uses milestone leveling, which I, which I dig. Murders are taking place all over Cesarea. Not the act of any one organization. Rather involve a web of individuals and societies working out of tandem. That's right. It's, it's, from what I understand, it's kind of a, a murder mystery, right? And it's tricky, especially like you're going to run a 10 level murder mystery. That's going to be, it's going to, it better be a great big, you know, great big thing. And I think with a title like Cult of the Hydra, I think we know what's going on, right? And so this idea of sort of hunting down and taking out a bunch of different factions that is a that's definitely that to me is a really good that's sort of like the kill bill model right if you think about the movie kill bill the kill bill model works really well as an adventure thing there are five bosses you need to take out the five bosses right before you can get to the last six boss great way of running a large a large campaign that can really work so lots of cool locations lots of interesting things so um it's not a nitpick exactly but this is, to me, it is an example, and we're going to get into the, the, the a, bit, a bit of the tabletop industry here of, and I'm not criticizing, Josh and I have already talked about this, so he knows he knows what I'm going to say. And I, I think, if I recall, it wasn't up to Josh, but not that it matters either way, right? Like, people are certainly free to make this choice and, and go with what they've got. I would be surprised if this adventure makes its money back, right? I, I look at this, and it feels like a 30 you know, like a $30,000 adventure, right? This is an expensive adventure. I think it's 180. I think I, I, I did a, some quick math and it was like 180,000 words. 
and I'm not, I'm not, I'm not assuming how much Josh got paid, but let's say it was 10 cents a word, which is sort of the industry average rate at about this point. That is $1,800 for the words alone, right? Just the text, usually editing and layout and everything doubles that, right? And then artwork, you know, it's like a hundred to $300 a piece. And there's a lot of artwork in here. 30,000, that might be a little high, but like 20, that's not out of hand. Like, you know, I know how much it costs me to make Fantastic Adventures and Ruins of the Grendel Root. Ruins of the Grendel Root and uh, Fantastic Layers are both a little bit smaller than this, but also had a lot of custom art, had a lot of editing, a lot of page design, everything like that. And they were like twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000 to make, right? So that's a lot of money. And you have to sell a lot of copies at 30 bucks a copy to be able to make your money back, right? It's hard to do. The only way that books like Ruins of the Grand Root and Fantastic Layers were able to be made and and be made and and have and 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 be able to pay for themselves was through things like Kickstarter and being able to host them on different sites and sell them at different parts of sales and bundle them with other things become part of humble bundles and stuff like that right it it took a lot of work so when I when I talk about the fact that there's really not that many adventures, not many products like this that you see on the DMs Guild, the reason why it is is really, really hard for them to make their money back on the DMs Guild alone, right? The the common arg- argument to publish on the DMs Guild. So there's, to me, there's like four-ish sort of arguments for publishing on the DMs Guild. One is you get to use Wizards intellectual property. And that is a really good one, right? It's a really good one. This is not a Forgotten Realms city, right? It is, it is, uh, Josh, is it written in the Forgotten Realms at all? Or is it really meant to be in any world, right? I guess, Josh, let me ask you a question since you're here. What components of this book required that it was on the DMs Guild? And I'm not picking here, right? Because one thing, I, I, like, I'm real heavy handed about this, but I don't blame anybody, right? If you did it and you knew what you were getting into, go with the gods, right? Like you, you know, you publish wherever you want. And if you think it's really beneficial to publish on the guild, publish on the guild, right? Uh, I talked about this when I did un, uh, Uncaged Goddesses, right? right? Any world really, uh, but I provide guidance for sticking to the Forgotten Realms, right? So that guidance is something that you could, that you could include. So I'm not saying it was wrong, right? I'm not going to poke at anybody and say it was wrong, but I will say as an example for people who are looking at products that are on the DMs Guild, they're particularly publishers that are thinking about publishing on the DMs Guild. And you look at a product like this and it's, and you're like, wow, I'd like to publish this. I don't, I, I, I think it's going to be hard for the, for, for, for the creators of this to make their money. And I know, I know Josh got paid by the word, so I know he's, I know he's good, right? But I think it's going to be hard to make their money back on this because you're, you're, you're depending upon one single source of income, which is people going to the DMs Guild and buying your book. You can't kickstart it. You can't get any kind of crowdfunding for it. You can't break it up into pieces and turn it into Patreon stuff. You can't, you know, there's so, you can't sell it on other platforms. You can't do a print-on-demand version. On, and you, uh, uh, the, Josh, I don't think there's a print-on-demand version of this, right? It's really hard to get the DMs Guild to give you permission to make a print-on-demand version. On DriveThruRPG, you can, you know, it gets really big. So I don't want to harp too much on this, but my, my point is that there's a reason why you don't see products of this caliber on the DMs Guild typically. And it's because it takes a tremendous amount of work. I'll give you a couple of examples where it makes sense that it was on there. And that is with Keith Baker's stuff, right? Keith Baker's writing Eberron. You can't write Eberron anywhere else but the DMs Guild legally, right? So when he wants to do it, he definitely has to publish there, right? If you look at the, the Thay book that just came out, right? We, 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 we took a look at the, the book about Thay. Or, we, we haven't looked at the book about Thay, right? But there's a, there's a great big book about Thay 
I forget. It's around here somewhere. And that also just came out. Clearly also really expensive book. Lots of writers. Ed Greenwood was one of the writers for it. Alan Patrick was one of the writers for it. Written by, oh God, I forget the guy's name. Dude dude who runs Gamehole Con and owns the Gamehole Tavern where they play D&D in Wisconsin there, right? And they clearly put a ton of money into this too. And it is a best-selling title. I still don't think that they're going to have a hard time making their money back. So... So one thing I will say, when you see a 178-page book like this on the DM scale and it costs 30 bucks, you're, you're still getting a good deal. Because I guarantee you, you couldn't make this book for 30 bucks, right? It's still a really good, a really good value. Josh, do you, I mean, <laughs> do you want me to say how much you got paid? Wow, that is, that, you, you did, you did, you, you, you done good, right? He doesn't mind. So Josh got eight, eight, eight and a half thousand dollars, eight thousand five hundred dollars for that. Is that right? And that was just for the words, right? Not the art. So we know that this book is expensive and we know that it's going to be hard for them to get their money back. So I think it would be difficult. So that's something to keep in mind, right? If you're thinking about the kind of stuff that you're producing, where are you going to produce it? I, I, I didn't even get my four things, but I've already talked about this a lot. So I don't want to spend too much time on it. But basically like if you're using Watsy IP, DMs Guild is absolutely the way to go. If you want access to a bunch of Wizards of the Coast artwork that they make available on the DMs Guild, that is also a really good place to, to go. And then there's a couple things where I'm like, hey, one is it's the way for Wizards of the Coast to discover you, right? That's kind of true, but they've actually discovered plenty of people like Dan Dillon works at Wizards of the Coast now. I don't think he's got many DM Guild titles. He got there because of the tremendous work he did over at Cobalt Press outside of the DMs Guild, right? So... They do find people like M.T. Black, James Ritter Casso, you know, other writers that have written for. Josh, did you, do you, are you publishing one of the hardcover books? I can't remember if you're, if you've, if you've done work for Wizards of the Coast directly. I forget. He says he is not, right? So here's an example, right? Josh, Josh is a tremendous writer. Tremendous, right? Hammers out tons and tons of stuff. I've written for Josh. Josh is one of my bosses, right? I wrote for him. Um, he wrote marketing for Magic the Gathering. That's interesting. So I've, I've written stuff for books that, that Josh has put together, right? So he's got tons and tons of stuff in the guild. Wizards never called him up and said, hey, you want to write for one of our hardcover adventures? But they have for other people. The question is like, how many people have written for the guild compared to how many people are writing for Watsi? It's very, very small, right? So is it a way? Yeah, it's not really a way with odds that are in your favor. And then fourth is people say like, if you're writing a D&D thing, it is the best single place to sell them. That's probably correct. But it doesn't include the additive property of all of the other places that you can sell it on the other side. There's no way to do crowdfunding. There's no way to be part of bigger deals. There's no way to like give samples of it. I guess you can kind of give samples of it around, but you're a little bit more limited in the samples. So yeah, is it the best single source to sell like small print D&D stuff? Probably, probably better than if you put it on the DMs Guild or in DriveThruRPG. But you're giving up an exclusive perpetual license to do it. And that to me is a it's a bit much for those last two. Those are those are not to me, those are not good reasons, right? The first two are good reasons. Getting access to all of their artwork and getting access to their IP. That is a tremendous way. The easy one for me is write for the DMs Guild if you're writing about DD worlds. If you're not writing for DD worlds, an example, Cult of the Hydra, my recommendation is write it outside of there and publish on the on drive through rpg and other rpg your own website your own store you know you can launch kickstarters all different other things that said a lot of people still love working on the dms guild they still want to publish their stuff there go with the gods i just want people to understand what they're doing right and not in a bad way but just i'm i would if, if everyone if people are doing with their eyes open i'm on i'm totally with them i'm totally on board and i'm sure they did if josh said hey guys people are working on this i think you should kickstart and they said no we'd really rather do it on the guild we want to build a presence there they knew what they were doing and i don't i don't blame them for it so that's my that's my thought so yeah good to know black Sickle games wanted it wanted it there 
perfect, right? Cobalt Press did. Cobalt Press published some stuff on the DMs Guild. So they, they have like one product there, but it's pretty telling that they've never published anything else on the DMs Guild, right? So very interesting. Anyway, Cult of the Hydra, very cool. Very, you know, big, big book. Lots of stuff going on. 180 pages, 30 buck PDF. Go pick it up. Uh, link for it are in the, link for it is in the show notes below. So, you know what? I'm going to skip the next segment here. And we're going to go straight into Patreon questions. I want to do some Patreon questions. We have a new March Patreon Q&A. So brand new questions for the month of March. If you're a patron of Sly Flourish, you can go to the Patreon page, look for the March Q&A and add your questions there. That will be that will be awesome. Josh, thank you so much for hanging out in the chat while we were talking about your adventure. Very cool stuff. Brilliant, brilliant adventure. Beautiful, beautiful artwork. Really, really cool stuff. Patrick M, how do I get my players or my other DM to read the player's handbook and become better acquainted with the rules? Carrot or stick? I've asked kindly, slowed the game down to explain the attack modifiers, sometimes painfully. I have been challenged on the basic rules uh, and appear as a draconian DM for kicking uh, two spell attacks as part of a fighter's extra attack. Most players seem to take interest, read the relevant sections of the PHP and never read this, but there are a few players that can never find the time or show the effort. I'm growing tired of asking, pointing to sections, resolving basic character generation items and have to stop the game to explain a longsword's damage. These players are five months into this game. And refuse to read the book. I almost want to make a rule that like I'm no longer allowed to say, hey, have a session zero, right? There's there's certain things where like there's there's sort of these knee-jerk reactions to questions like this, like sit down and talk to your players, right? Well, no shit, right? And of course, sit down and talk to your players. But like, so I want to get past like the, oh, well, talk about it in a session zero or sit down and talk to your players and try to dig in a little deeper. Uh, into this. So what do you do when you have players who just aren't as engaged? So, so there's a few sort of angles on this, right? And one is like, generally speaking, I try to let players play how they want to play. But if that, if that kind of play is disruptive, that's, it's something to address. And it's one thing to not have really read your uh, player's handbook and not really know the rules of your character. And something else to not, to, to not answer to, to 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 not read the rules of the book and argue with your dm about those rules right that that's that's special right that probably needs to be addressed and so you know what one common approach for this is hopefully there is somebody at the table who has read the book and does understand this stuff and you find the person we used to call them the rules lawyer i haven't heard a lot of talk about rules lawyers recently maybe because i haven't really had one right i've had on occasion i get somebody that's like Rick, can they do that right so if you usually find the one who is the one who argues the most and you assign them the role of rules lawyer right and by making them the rules lawyer, then when there's a, something like this that comes up you kind of point to them and say hey i'm pretty sure this is right can you look it up for me i'm going to rule this way can you go, can you go, can you go look this up? So, you know, so that's, so that's an option. D&D Beyond has killed the rules lawyer. It's made the rules lawyer job a little faster, but I don't think it's killed it. It is worth, if you have a particular player where you have this problem, it, that might be worth sitting down with them one-on-one -on -one and kind of saying like, look, let me tell you how I feel. Like, I feel like, you know, it, it feels like I'm doing a lot of work to try to describe the rules to you. It really helped me out if, you would, you know, read into your character, right? I, I actually think that D&D Beyond causes a problem with this because you don't actually have to pick up and read any of the books in order to select the things that you select for your character, right? You just kind of 
pick checklists and you've got it. And you've never actually read this section about your character class and how they work, right? Or how the spellcasting feature works. So I think you can get there because they haven't read the book. And a lot of times I will tell people like, hey, you probably want to spend some time actually reading the book, right? Not get, it, get out from the character sheet and actually read the book. So you can kind of nudge them in that direction. Carrot or stick, I always go with carrot, right? Because what's the stick, right? You know, you, you, you leave, right? So... So it's tricky, it, but it, it's probably worth a conversation out of the game to say just, and, 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 you know, crucial conversation style, right? How do you feel? Instead of saying you're doing X, Y, and Z, right? Say, I feel, you know, the magic words of I feel like, right? The, how do you feel about it? Focus on the situation and what's going on with the situation, not the people, but the situation. What's the problem you have? How does, how is it affecting you? And what are the ways that you need their help to help Turn this situation into one that you're happier with. It's a very different approach than being confrontational, which isn't going to work. Don't put people on defensive. You're, you don't read the books. You don't understand the rules of the game, right? You, you do stuff like that. They just shut down and become defensive. They either shut down and they're embarrassed. You want to get past embarrassment. You want to get past aggression. Put them on your side. They're, they're next to you. They're lined up. And you have this problem in front of you. And you need their help to help solve this problem. That's kind of the approach I would take with a conversation that I would have with them. So, Patrick, I hope that helps a little bit. It's a tough problem, right? This is These are, you know, here on the Sly Flare Show, we don't deal with easy problems. We deal with tough problems. And this is a tough this is a tough problem. Soren R says, tips on creating a vastly powerful creature like a Dark Lord. Homebrewed domain, final chapter, very long campaign. I feel like what I've planned is going to be a letdown after the buildup. So an interesting thing, the dark lords are like the super powerful entities that rule that rule within a domain of the domains of dread from like Van Richten's guide. There's a difference between the dark lord and the dark powers, right? A dark lord, uh, a dark lord is like Strahd, right? A dark power is the weird ethereal entity that has put Strahd in his place and forces him to relive his pain, right? So, you know... Tips on creating an encounter with a vastly powerful creature like a Dark Lord. All of the things that work with building a boss encounter are are going to help you with a Dark Lord, right? And and there's lots of tricks for boss encounters. I have an article on Sly Flourish. Let's take a look. Delay, no. On bosses. Boss. All right, collected experience running D&D 5e boss fights. This is an article where I talk to lots of people about how to run boss fights, Twitter and Facebook and all sorts of things. And try to bring back the results of like what you can do. And the summary, I think I might have uh, another article too. Yeah, there's lots of different articles about bosses, right? Add more monsters, right? Drain the character's resource before the fight. Use the environment. Focus on story-based challenges. Improve boss tactics. Understand the capabilities of the characters and increase the boss's hit points, right? These are all the different mentions of all of these different clues that I think are pretty good, pretty good things that you can do to a boss. There's definitely some new things now, like Matt Colville-style action-oriented monsters. I have the improvising Colville-style action-oriented monsters. Uh, I'll link to all these in the, in the notes below, right? Add necrotic damage, right? Usually big bosses just don't do enough damage. So jack, jack, their, jack their damage up. I gotta put my talk show picture back up. Usually they uh, just need to do more damage a lot of times. Lair, good lair actions is a, is a good one. Like take a look at lair actions. There was that book I reviewed uh, a few shows back that added lair actions to any creature. But one thing to consider with Dark Lords is that Dark Lords by, by their definition in Van Richten's Guide aren't necessarily really powerful on their own. They could be a noble, right? And it could be the whole situation around the noble is really hard to deal with, but then you get to the noble and it's like one hit with a sword and they're down. 
So it, it's not necessary that a Dark Lord be super powerful. But in this, I, th I assume you're talking about a vastly powerful creature. Reskinning is really good. You know, taking big powerful monsters and reskinning them, of course, can work. But all of the all of the general tips for building for building good boss fights, I think, is good. Lightning rods. I talked about lightning rods before, where you you put certain monsters into a battle that are specifically designed to take attacks that you know your players are going to dish out that normally would take out a boss like banish or polymorph or things like that. Give them creatures to do those too, so they feel good about doing the ability. They feel good about getting rid of a big monster, but it doesn't affect the boss. Stuff like that. So I hope that that helps answer your question. Spencer A, what are your thoughts on milestone level pacing? My players have spent a ton of time in chapter three and four of Storm King's Thunder. I've pulled in a ton of extra adventures and random encounters. As one does when one is running Storm King's Thunder. Everyone's having fun, but I, I can imagine that they may spend way more time at level six, seven, and eight, and then very quickly hit nine, ten, nine and 10 because of how the story is structured. The rails kind of come back later in the module. That is true. Is this a problem? Maybe. Do I need to do anything or am I overthinking this? If your players are having fun, you, you know, things might be okay, but you you have control over that over those milestones and you can decide that you're gonna take some of those levels. Six, seven, and eight are happening really slowly. Nine and 10 are happening really quickly. Take some of the range out of the nine and 10, move the nine into the eight so they're happening a little faster. And uh, you can you can tweak the milestones, right? And it's it's probably worth looking at it, saying how many how much time. But you could say like it takes you defeating two giant lords before you're going to get a level instead of one, right? So whatever the milestone is in the book, that's a suggestion, and you can change it based on your pacing. Storm King's Thunder is a really good example where it can go all over the place because the middle talk about a yam shaped adventure, right? This is like two funnels stuck on top of one another. It's super wide, right? Storm King's Thunder is the whole Sword Coast, right? So it's very narrow in the beginning, narrow at the end, super, super wide in the middle. And it's easy that, you, you, you know, it's not, it, it makes perfect sense that you would want to re-figure re out the milestones so that they are leveling at a pace that's fun. I had kind of the same problem in Rime of the Frostmaiden where leveling during the early levels was really slow because they did a lot of quests before they could get a level. And then suddenly they were leveling like every at a reasonable pace. So they leveled quickly, not quickly, but they leveled reasonably after they got out of chapter one. But chapter one, my leveling was really slow because I added a lot of stuff too. Same kind of problem. The other one, when I ran Storm King's Thunder, I think I leveled them faster. And I let it go to like 16th or 17th level by the end. And, and I just would turn those dials like crazy to make sure that the threats they were facing were really big. Because by the end of that, it's not it's not out of hand to be a good solid tier three adventure, right? It's It could be tier three, tier four, world saving kind of stuff at the end. I had them going on astral ships and, you know, finding weird wor other worlds that have been destroyed by Lich Kings. It was really interesting. I've had a lot of fun. So that's the other one is just let them level faster and just tweak, tweak it up as long as the story is scaling as well. Sasquatch says, uh, when introducing fronts in a campaign, do you show the players different fronts and then uh, then and then once all are introduced, they decide what to work towards? Or do you have a few quest givers introduce a few fronts then after they deal with one, the other quests are just get worse or... So for uh, fronts, I'm, I'm trying to get out of the jargon of front and just call them villains, right? What is a front? A front is a, a campaign villain, really. The only difference between a front and a villain is sometimes a front might be like a natural disaster or an asteroid coming to crash into it. It's not necessarily a person, right? And my argument for this is it depends on what you're doing. Generally speaking, I don't introduce all of the, all of the villains, but you can. 
right? Again, if we look at the Kill Bill model, right? The Kill Bill model, she's got her list and on her list are all of the villains and she's picking which ones she's going to go hunt down at any given time. And some of them might be really, really hard and some of them might not, right? So you can think about your campaign and decide there, there's not one model for this, right? Like the, the, all of these things, all of these kind of ideas are all flexible and they all kind of, you know, well, it depends and it depends on your campaign. I could definitely see a campaign where you introduce a number of villains, like the four lieutenants that you have to kill in order to awaken the boss before you can get to the boss or you have to get rid of the four lieutenants before you can make your way to the boss. Nice straight campaign. That would be one. And then they can pick which one they're going to go after. I could see another one where you have sort of escalating bosses. You have a tier one boss, a tier two boss, a tier three boss and a tier four boss, right? And you sort of learn about them as you go. Either of those approaches can work depending on the kind of structure you want for your campaign. Uh, really, the whole thing about a villain is it's just sort of a handy metaphor. It's a handy little tool to use. This idea that you have three villains, right? It doesn't always have to be three. It could be five. It could be two, right? But let's just, we, we go with three because it's easy, right? Three villains. They each have their own goal. Maybe they're interwoven. Maybe one is sequential to the other. We don't really know, but they have goal. Each, each villain has a goal and they have steps that they're taking to get there. And these are ideally steps that are visible to the characters. These are steps that the characters might see when they are, when they're going about it. So, you know, you can move those pieces around to kind of fit your support. I don't think there's like bad ways. I probably wouldn't dump a lot of stuff on the players right, you know, right at the beginning, but I think that it can... I think I think it's a flexible enough model that you can use it in lots of different ways and still have it be useful. So Sasquatch, I hope I hope that helped answer your question. Helena R says you mentioned in a video you think about adding a new rule quote. We're just talking about how I feel about rules and for the deadly encounter benchmark when it comes to PCs in tier three and four. Have you updated on uh, any uh, updated on that idea? I remember that it went something like if the PCs are eleventh level or higher, the deadly benchmark is equal to the sum of their levels. Yeah, so I actually have this as an optional rule. Let's see if I can find it here. So the Lazy DM's Companion, my latest book, has a section on the Deadly Encounter Benchmark, right? I can't remember if I call it Deadly Encounter Benchmark or Lazy Encounter Benchmark, if I call it anything like that at all. Where, do, 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 can't find it in my own book. That's embarrassing. Oh, that's why. Lazy DM Combat Encounters, right? So I offer the same system that we talked about for the other one, which is uh, a very fast way to... So, so here's a different approach for, I'm going to give a quick summary. I try to give a quick summary, right? What's a different approach for balancing encounters in your 5e game? A, we don't worry about balance. We worry, we only worry about one thing. Is an encounter going to inadvertently wipe out the characters or not? That's all we're really worried about. Easy battles are fine, right? Battles where they're facing a small number of foes. That's actually a really fun way for the characters to show off their capabilities. So that's, that's perfectly fine. But then we look at it and say, if we're setting up a situation... So we start off with what does the situation call for, right? What kind of monsters does it call for? What, what is it, how does it put together? And then we ask ourselves, you know, so we think about that and we think about that in general terms. We think about that in the kind of monsters we throw in. So what kind of monsters make sense for the given situation, right? Then we ask ourselves, am I accidentally going to kill the characters off, right? Is this really dangerous? Is this inadvertently dangerous? Like I'm not expecting it to be as dangerous. And the way we figure that out is we look at its deadliness. And the deadliness, a way to determine deadliness is to add up all the monster challenge ratings. You'll get all the monsters that are gonna be in an encounter. You add all their challenge ratings together. And if, and you also add all the character levels together. So you got these, all the character levels together, all the challenge ratings together. If the total number of monster challenge rate, if, if the total monster, if the total number of character levels 
is less than, I have to make sure I get, the encounter might be deadly. Why don't I just read it from my own book? An encounter might be deadly if the total of all monster challenge ratings is greater than one quarter of the total of character levels, right? So you take all the character levels, you divide it by four, you look at total monster challenge ratings. If the total monster challenge ratings is more than one fourth of the total character levels, it might be deadly. Doesn't mean it will be, but it means you're in the red zone, right? It means that it could be deadly given the situation. Maybe the circumstances mean it's okay. Maybe the way the monsters are coming into the battle and not all like piled on the characters at once, stuff like that. Lots of factors can change that. That goes up to one half of character levels if they're fifth level or higher. So the question here is, what about at 11th level and above? Does it go up? And I have a section here called scaling for higher levels. It says, as the characters reach level 11 and higher, the deadly encounter benchmark becomes less useful for accurately representing deadly encounters because players bring different characters bring different things depending on the capabilities blah 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 so here's an optional rule you might try out it's a little dangerous because this one's really hard right if you run like a hard mode at 11th level and higher an encounter may be deadly if the total of all monster challenge ratings is greater than three quarters of the total level of character levels or equal to the total character levels at 17th and above so you can kind of think about like tier one is one quarter of character levels. Tier two is half of character levels. Tier three is three quarters of character levels. Tier four is equal to character levels. That means like Balor, one Balor per character is almost right. And that's really hard, right? So if you use this, it's going to be really, you know, that so a, you don't build encounters based on the guideline. The guideline is to tell you if you're going to kill them based on what the situation is requiring, right? So... That's, that's a key point. You don't reverse engineer it. You don't start with you. You don't treat it as a budget. You don't say like my budget for the encounter is one quarter character levels. Instead, the other way is you say how many, what creatures make sense. Is this greater than that? Right. And if it is, then you tweak to suit. So I hope that, I hope that makes sense. It wasn't my best explanation of that. But uh, my point is, yeah, I remember it's something like, so, so 11th level and above it's three quarters of character levels and at 17th and above it's equal to character levels. Again, that's a loose gauge. And if you think about that, if you have like, let's do some math. Let's say you have five 17th level characters. Let's say five 18th level characters, right? That's CR, that's 90 CRs worth. That's like three Tarasks, right? So does that mean like it takes three Tarasks, you know, to be deadly? Maybe, but you know, it means you certainly, it's accurate because what it's saying is it may be deadly. 90 CRs of monsters is <laughs> probably deadly. So it, it could also be deadly at half that, right? Or not, probably not 45. I don't know. So it's really a gauge, right? And it's a very loose gauge. Don't hang on too tight. It's not a budget. It's not a, you can't build a spreadsheet that makes it perfect because boy, there's so many variables that go into the difficulty of an encounter that you cannot articulate them all. So given that you can't articulate it, we try to come up with a simple rule of thumb that you can use that you keep in your head. One quarter, one half, three quarters equal to at the four tiers of play good it's about as good as you're gonna get i've worked really hard on this and that's the best one i've got so helena i hope that answers your question let's do one more question carl o says do you play solo rpgs and if yes what's your experience with it thank you for providing great value and perspective of hobbies thank you so carl yeah i have i do play solo rpgs uh, i played dark fort recently i talked about that when i was talking about mark bjerg ferratory is it called yeah berg ferratory look at that cover Right. Oh, man. So York Bjerg Ferratory includes a small solo game called Dark Fort, right? And I played that for fun and I enjoyed it. It actually got me to make a solo RPG that is available 
in Sly Flourish's Uncovered Secrets Volume 2 to patrons. You want, want to play some little bit of D&D by yourself? I've got rules to help you out in, in, in Sly Flourish's Uncovered Secrets Volume 2 available to patrons. And so I like that. I liked Iron Sworn a lot. I really enjoyed playing Iron Sworn solo. I think it's a fantastic solo RPG. I played another one called Thousand Year Old Vampire. I liked that one a lot. That was that was also a lot of fun. Thousand Year Vampire is like what I think they call like a journaling game. And it's essentially like you and some dice and you sort of write a journal from the perspective of a vampire who's living for a thousand years. Really kind of fun game. Very, very focused. What I really like about them, what I think they are, they are great dm brain priming activities they they force your brain to come up with cool and imaginative things and kind of improvise it and it builds a muscle right you're building up you're building a, a neural muscle that helps you improvise during bigger DD games so i i like them a lot i think they're a fun way to cross train uh for DD, as well as like you know if you've got an hour to kill it's a good way to spend an hour kind of by yourself diving in your imagination and really enjoying it. I found it to be a very, very cool and fun experience. So I, I definitely, I definitely recommend it. And I like Iron Sworn a lot. I enjoyed Thousand Year Vampire uh, a fair bit. The, the, the quality of that book is amazing. Dark Ford is really fun. And, you know, I would try out my, my little D&D solo RPG. It's a fun way to, to play a little bit of D&D and have some fun. So Carl, yeah, thank you for that question. Really, really good stuff. We come to the end of the Lazy D&D talk show. Uh, thank you so much for watching the show. I hope you had a good time. If you did, you can help me out in four ways. You can subscribe to the Sly Flourish newsletter. You can support me directly on Patreon. You can pick up any of my books or you can subscribe to my videos on YouTube. Thank you all very much. Have a great day and get out there and play some D&D. &D.